If you got your Bibles, you can open them up. We're going to be continuing in Mark. We're in Mark 2, 23, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 through uh, chapter 3, verse 6 tonight. Um, you can flip it on in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we've got a few left on the table to my left and your right. Uh, so you can grab one there as well. Um, again, I want to say thank you to Adam for preaching for us last week as we kind of stepped out of Mark for a week so that I could have a, a full week of recovery. And so we heard back from the doctor this week, and I have, as far as my heart issue was concerned, a clean bill of health, and so uh, we're glad to have that behind us and um, on to whatever is the next health issue I'll probably have to face in life. Uh, but for now, we're excited and grateful that things are healthy and well, and so tonight we pick back up in Mark's gospel. Has anyone in here ever played the card game Mao, spelled like the chairman Mao, M-A-O? Anybody? Two people, if, if you're in here and you never play that game, don't play it ever. <laughs> it's the worst game in the world, let me explain. I played it while on a fall retreat in college. And the object of Mao is to get rid of the cards in your hand. Seems simple enough, right? But here's the catch to this ridiculous game that makes me angry now even talking to you about it. All the rules are unspoken. So if you've never played and you don't know the rules, you don't know what the heck you're supposed to do. I remember getting so mad. This was far more competitive, Chris. None of you know him. Thank God he's hopefully dead and gone. I got so mad playing with other people who I know for a fact love Jesus that I slammed my cards down on the table and stormed out of the common area where we were playing and spoke to no one else for the rest of the night. They all laughed and thought it was funny, and I kept going... I don't understand. And so even having read the rules in preparation for tonight, I still never want to play it again <laughs> because it requires somebody to, to play the game. You at least have to have one person who knows the rules. And then it's kind of up to everybody else. You're supposed to be able to figure it out. I got so mad I couldn't see straight, so I never figured out what the rules were. But it was so frustrating because I knew that people knew how to play the game. I knew that people could tell me if they wanted to how to play the game, but they chose to withhold the rules from me. And so I ended up all over the place trying to figure out how it was that I could best follow the rules that I didn't even know existed. And in much the same way, in the text tonight, we're going to see Jesus continue to engage with the Pharisees and scribes as a means of exposing how they have taken the law or God's rules for righteous living and they've so obscured it with their own interpretations and their own additions and their own understanding of how it is to be lived that they've actually turned it into a burden and it's become a means of creating distance rather than dependence on God. And not only that, but the unwritten or oral law of the Pharisees, they levied as a means of power and control over the people of Israel which actually serves as a condemnation, not of those who kept breaking the rules, but of those who created these extra rules in the first place. And by the end of our time today, we will see these men enrage and disgust that Jesus' display of authority and power begin to plan how they can eliminate their most pertinent threat. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you came and you lived not only did you live the life that we couldn't live, but the Spirit of God inspired men to write down examples and stories of your life here on earth so that we would be left not wondering what the life of a disciple should look like, but having the pages of Scripture to help inform us in knowing and understanding 
what it looks like to be a devoted follower of Jesus, regardless of the time or the place that we live or in which we were born. And so, Father, our aim tonight is to be faithful disciples. Our aim for our whole life is to be faithful disciples. But we also do well to heed the warning that it is not but one step over to become more like the Pharisees than like our Jesus. That we can take the rules that are meant to lead to dependence and righteous living and we can use them as means to create distance and try to leverage control over people's lives. And so we want to be those who live submitted to you and point people to our great God and Savior. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Mark 2, we're going to read each section at, uh, separately. This is what Mark 2, 23 through 28 says. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathur the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are making their way from one undisclosed destination to another on the Sabbath. And while walking, they pass along the edge of a grain field, and the disciples reach out their hands and begin to pluck heads of grain off of the stalks and they would rub that, those heads of grain between their palms and it would loosen up the kernels from the shaft and then they would kind of blow lightly into their hands and blow the shaft out of their hands and then they would eat the kernels as a snack, as a means to appease their hunger. Jesus obviously has no issue with what is taking place because you don't hear Jesus correcting his disciples because they aren't really breaking the law, because in Deuteronomy 23, 25, Moses had written, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And so they were not robbing the owner of this grain field by taking a few of the heads to meet their need of hunger. They weren't breaking the law of the Sabbath by reaching out their hands to take a few bites of grain to ease their hunger. But the Pharisees and the scribes, who would have been out walking themselves, take notice, and they begin to ask questions because according to their litany of extra-biblical laws surrounding the Sabbath, what the disciples of Jesus are partaking in is work by their definition, and therefore the Sabbath has been broken, and they are in sin. This whole interaction reminds me of um, a few years ago. It was actually 2013, which would be six years, five years ago, six years ago, whatever. It's been a long week. Six years ago, during the Masters in the first round or second round, a Tiger Woods had hit a shot. I believe it was on uh, 13 or maybe 15, and he had dunked it in the water. And so he'd come back out. And the, the rules of golf are you have, if you take a drop, you can drop it from where you hit it. And then you can have a shot. You're assessed a penalty, but you can drop it and then hit it from there again. And so Tiger drops and he hits. And the ball goes on and he finishes his round. But there was a guy who used to be a tour official, a tournament official, sitting home watching this. And he begins to rewind and watch, rewind and watch, rewind and watch. And what he notices is that where Tiger's hitting from is clear fairway. And what he knew was that 
the shot that went in the water, Tiger had taken a divot out of the fairway. And so if Tiger's hitting from a clean fairway, Tiger's had an incorrect drop. And so this guy calls around and gets people to, at the Masters, aware of what's happened. And they are able to correct the issue. Tiger's assessed a two-stroke penalty and never really recovers. When it first came out, the way that the PGA and the way that the story broke was that some random guy like me was sitting at home watching this world-class golfer and then going, uh, Tiger broke the rules, let me call somebody. And like called up the, like I don't even know that you can call the masters, like, but called up and got Tiger in trouble. It happened again two years ago on the LPGA Tour. A girl was, all, a lady was en route to winning one of the majors on the LPGA and a couch potato golf fan saw a rule that she had broken that no one else had seen, called in, told them what rule had been broken. She was assessed a four-shot penalty and went from up three to down one and never recovered in the final round in order to win. And you're like, what right does a person who maybe plays golf and has like an 85 handicap, how can they sit around on their couch and call in somewhere and tell golf professionals, you did your job wrong and you need to be penalized for it? Like that's what this whole interaction with the Pharisees and Jesus reminds me of. Jesus knows the rules. Jesus is the God who inspired the rules. And yet the Pharisees try to take him to task, try to explain to him what the law is really supposed to mean. That's what this whole interaction is like. Does anyone in here watch legal TV shows? Anybody watch? I mean, if you've watched TV in the last 20 years, you've at least probably watched unintentionally one episode of Law & Order because it's on every channel all the time, right? But especially those that center around not necessarily the cops, but the lawyers who are in the courtroom. Whether you're on the prosecution or the defense, what's one thing in real life or especially in the dramatized version of life known as TV, what's the one thing both sides are always looking for as a means to strengthen their case? They'll go back and they'll search all these law books because they're trying to find a precedent. They're trying to find something that they can appeal to that has already happened that would bolster their case or make the case for why they're pursuing either prosecuting or defending someone. Cornell University's online law dictionary defines precedent as a case or issue decided by a court that can be used to help answer future legal questions. So we see Jesus' response to the Pharisees is an appeal to the precedent set by David and his men when they were hungry and on the run from Saul and broke Torah, or the law, as a means of satisfying their hunger. If you wanted to go back and read it, 1 Samuel 21, 1-6 tells the story of David approaching the priest, serving before God. David lies about being on a special mission from King Saul and asks for the bread of the presence, which was to be for the priest alone to eat, according to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. And verse 9 says, And it, meaning the bread of the presence, shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. David has lied. He's eaten the bread that was for the priest alone, and thereby he has broken two commands. Yet nowhere in 1 Samuel 21, yet and nowhere in the interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, is David condemned for sinning. 
And so Jesus is drawing out this implication of you need to decide if David is the prototypical messianic figure that you see as the king who sets the example for the Messiah that is to come, if you're willing to overlook David's breaking of the law in order to meet the human need of hunger for his men, then what are you going to do with me and those who are following me? James Edwards note this, notes this significance more Uh, clearly than I can about Jesus pointing to David when he says in making the allusion to David Jesus is inviting a comparison between his person and Israel's royal messianic prototype in other words if the one who serves as the forerunner of the Messiah can be held in such high regard by the Pharisees sinful as he was why are they so bent on criticizing Jesus disciples who haven't broken the law The answer is that these men who've worked so diligently to add human law to divine law feel their authority over their fellow men, which has been packaged and disguised as religious piety slipping away. Therefore, they are working to discredit the one who threatens to remove them from power. And so Jesus says, you remember this story, and obviously they've read it. They're Pharisees and scribes. Their whole life has been given to reading and memorizing the books we struggle to get through in our yearly Bible reading plan. Like they had Leviticus and Numbers committed to memory. Of course they knew what was written in 1 Samuel about David. Of all the men in the Old Testament, one of the ones that everyone that studied the law knew about was David. He was the king par excellence until the Messiah arrived. And Jesus says, why is no one roundly condemning David for his sins. And yet my disciples and I have done nothing, and yet you stand ready to condemn. Jesus knows that their hearts are bent on maintaining power. Jesus knows that their real desire is not to please God in their obedience, but their real desire is to maintain control of others through adding additional laws to the law of God. But Jesus doesn't stop. And if there's one thing I think that will become clear if it's not already, and we've talked about this previously, Jesus doesn't dance around the idea of agitating and instigating confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus knows who he is. He knows what he's come to do. And he knows the game that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are playing. And so you never see Jesus back up from a fight. Oftentimes, especially in Mark, because of the pace at which Mark moves the story along, you see Jesus pushing people to make decisions about who he is. And so here we see he presses in on the issue of authority and power when he reinterprets and reestablishes the Sabbath, thereby rescuing it from the extraneous, life-sucking, burdensome rule it had become under the Pharisees' watch. Jesus says, in essence, this is my paraphrase, not in any way authoritative. Hey, boys, don't forget the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. As a son of man, I have the authority and power to give the correct and proper interpretation of Sabbath. After all, I have the authority to forgive sins in case you've forgotten. Most of the same Pharisees and scribes who confront him here in the grain field would have been present when he healed the paralytic and said, which is easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or to say you are healed, take up your mat 
and walk. And then he says, so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he looks at the paralytic and says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. If he's got the authority to forgive sins, he for sure can be the correct interpreter of what constitutes work on the Sabbath, of what the Sabbath is really supposed to be for the people of God. Jesus, yet again, points to his divine nature that serves as the source of his power. You're going to see Jesus throughout Mark go back and refer to himself over and over as the Son of Man. This phrase, Son of Man, is tied to Daniel 7, I believe it's verse 14, where there is talk about one who would come who was like a Son of Man, who would be God in the flesh, but it was shrouded in mystery. It wasn't quite as explicit as some of the promises made to David and to others. And so Jesus uses the Son of Man designation in Mark so that he can control how he reveals himself. He allows the mystery of the phrase Son of Man to work to his advantage so that as he uses it in different instances, he can control how he is revealed to be God in the flesh. And so when he says son of man, he is pointing back to his divine nature and his power. As Ben Witherington notes in his commentary on Mark, Jesus, the son of man, is Lord even over the Sabbath and its regulations. Thus, Jesus understands the original intention of the Sabbath and is bringing that into focus, providing true rest and restoration for his disciples. He has the power and authority to declare the old ways are no longer applicable, in view of the inbreaking action of God. And so Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was given as a good gift from God to his creation as a means of rest and replenishment. The Sabbath isn't first given in the law. The Sabbath isn't a response to sin entering the world. We have the first idea the first display of sabbath rest after creation before sin has entered the world god creates everything in genesis 1 and genesis 2 opens with god saying moses writing and saying god created it all and he looked out and he was pleased with everything and so he rested well was god exhausted no had god maxed out his ability to physically spiritually exert himself in creation no God had not once experienced a loss of power in his creative work. So when God steps back and God sees all that he's done and God rests, he creates a rhythm for us to follow because he knew that we, created in his image, are not imbued with divine eternal strength and power, that we need moments of rest. Because even when God is resting in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, the world doesn't spin out of control. He is still working in his rest to hold everything together. So it is that he invites us to rest in his work, trusting that he will hold everything together if we take one day a week to stop and slow down and enjoy the world that God has given us much the same way that he stopped after six days of creation and enjoyed all that he had made. So Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and don't forget, Man wasn't made to obey the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given so that man would enjoy rest and fellowship with the God who created him. 
It goes on in Mark 3, 1 through 6. We get this. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, meaning the crowd and inevitably the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Sometime later, Jesus returns to the synagogue in Capernaum to teach. And as he is teaching, it becomes known to him, or perhaps was known from the beginning of his time teaching, that a man with a withered hand is present. The Pharisees and scribes watch Jesus intently to see if he will heal on the Sabbath and continue his apparent disregard for their rules and laws. Jesus calls the man up and has him stand before the crowd. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, every time Jesus has healed someone, it has been people seeking Jesus out for him to heal them. This time, Jesus calls the man to him to make a point. Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to him to put before the Pharisees and those in the synagogue a moment of decision. So he calls him up. You've got to assume, if you're the man with the withered hand, you didn't go that day seeking Jesus out to be healed. The last thing you want to have happen is be paraded up in front of a room full of people who are well aware of your condition, and all of a sudden you feel like a pawn in a game of chess that you didn't even know was going on. All of a sudden you're a movable piece around the table. Jesus calls him up, and Jesus isn't going to use the man the way that the scribes and Pharisees would. This time, Jesus doesn't appeal to Scripture, but he appeals to the hearts of those present when he asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The answer to the first part of the question is simple. You are to do good on the Sabbath. As the ESV Study Bible further explains, to do good would not violate the Old Testament law, but it would violate the opponent's extra-biblical, mostly Pharisaic tradition. Their tradition misses the point of the Mosaic law, to love God and one's neighbor. So Jesus asked a very pointed question. What is it lawful to do? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to give life or to kill? It is always right, even on the Sabbath, to do good and to give life. It is always wrong on the Sabbath or any other day of the week to do harm or to kill. Jesus doesn't offer a third option here. He doesn't say, but what's most lawful on the Sabbath? Notice how Jesus is crafting this argument where he leaves no other option. There is no third way around what Jesus is doing here. He is putting them all at a point where they have to wrestle with, what do we do with Jesus? And so he says, do good or do harm? To take life, to give life, or to take life? To do good in the face of injustice and the sufferings of fellow man, such as the one with the withered hand, is one of the most stringent tests for determining true or false religion. 
Where Jesus sees the need of the man, he sees a moral imperative to act, regardless of whether the action is lawful or not. In contrast, the Pharisees and scribes are willing to do evil by not permitting healing and using their fellow Jew in his broken condition as a pawn, as a means to leverage power against Jesus. To do good, to see someone suffering and in need, and to fail to act, to help alleviate the suffering and the need is to fail one of the baseline tests for the authenticity of your walk with Jesus. We should feel compassion and movement towards people who need help in their time of need. It should never be a rationalization of, is this the best time to do it or is this not a good time? We should always be leaning towards it's better to do good and it's better to give life so jesus sees the moral imperative before him there's a man with a withered hand that he can heal and so jesus makes the move to heal him while the pharisees and the scribes watch in dumbfounded silence looking around mark tells us that jesus was angered and grieved at the hardness of heart of those present who were to be the teachers and interpreters of the law those who should have been primed to answer jesus's questions in the affirmative in a way that pointed to the loving, benevolent, gracious character of the God who gave the Sabbath as a good gift to his creation, instead sit on their hands, lip-sealed, while the rage and anger in their heart rises and boils over. Jesus then speaks a word, stretch out your hand. The man with the withered hand simply stretches his hand forward, Again, it's not work by any valid definition for Jesus to speak a word or for the man to stick his hand out. There's no work that is happening. And as the man's hand goes out, the man's hand is healed. Immediately, the Pharisees storm out of the synagogue and begin conspiring with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. James Edwards points out the alliance of these two otherwise antagonistic parties must argue for the magnitude of their opposition to Jesus. For those who were loyal to Herod and to Roman rule, even in the land of Israel, to them partner with those who hated the idea of the Roman way of life influencing and changing how the Jews lived in their land, for those two parties to get together should clue you in on the level of hatred that was there for Jesus. Because if Jesus has announced a new kingdom, and Jesus is now reinterpreting the laws that these men have worked so long to uphold, if Jesus is doing both, then he's not only a threat to the established religious order, the Pharisees and the scribes, he is also now posing a direct threat to the throne in Rome. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees get together, and they begin to conspire on how they could destroy Jesus. The opponents of Jesus had come to the synagogue itching for a fight, and Jesus had obliged. And unlike earlier instances where Jesus was sought by those needing healing, Jesus calls the man to him so he could be healed and thereby reveal the hearts of the Pharisees over against the heart of God. As R.H. Gundry says, it was never permitted to do harm or kill on the Sabbath. And so in the end, those who would contemplate such things were the real Sabbath violators. While in Jesus we see the first and faintest glimpse of how his compassion will be costly 
to him. Again, R.H. Gundry provides needed clarification when he says, Here Jesus is no sword-wielding rebel worthy of a Roman cross, but a man who grieves deeply over his enemies and who gets angry to save life, not kill, to do good, not harm. You ever just stop and go, man, what, what do we do with this Jesus as he's revealed in the Gospels? What do you do with the Son of God in the flesh, living and walking and healing and conducting his ministry in and among those who were, to one degree or another, trying their best to understand what it looks like to follow God in a world that is wrecked by sin? And I think a lot of times we give ourselves way too much credit for how we would respond if we were in the same situation as the scribes and the Pharisees and the everyday people in and around Jerusalem. And I think the other thing, if we were honest about it, is this, is we often put in a third way for people to respond to Jesus. Jesus offered two ways to respond to him. He said, is it right to do good or to do evil, to give life or to kill, meaning you're either with me or you're against me. And we know that that's the language of the scripture. We know that at the end of the day, when it's all boiled down and brought to the, the end of time, there will be only two types of people in the world, those who have trusted Christ and those who have not trusted Christ. But so often the way that we live, the way that we share Christ with our friends and our families and our coworkers, the way that we even work the gospel out in our own life, we seem to offer a third way that was nowhere present in the life and the ministry of Jesus, which is to say, how much is just enough to appease him? We're always looking for a third way to pursue obedience because we really struggle with owning how often we fall on the side of disobedience. But the good news of the gospel is that we can live in that tension of there are only two ways to go with Jesus because Jesus has purchased the way for us to be made righteous, to be made whole, to be reconciled to the Father. And it was through his own life and through his own death and through his own resurrection. And so we don't need to shy away from the sometimes what can feel like the harsh, razor-thin edge of life with Jesus. But if we begin to ask those questions of ourselves, of what does it look like to be fully committed to Jesus in this moment? Not to say, well, would Jesus do this if he were here? We know, by and large, from Scripture what Jesus would do. And I think a lot of times what we do is we try to make a third way of following Jesus available because we don't want to appear too committed or too weird in our devotion to Jesus. We want to stop just short of people having really hard questions to ask about us and the way that we choose to live our life. But Jesus is always walking and talking and teaching, not only them, but now through the word and through his spirit in our life to say, you've got two options. It's obedience to me or disobedience to me. It's trusting that I'm good and I have life to give, or it's doing evil and in the end finding yourself face to face with death. So we've got to wrestle with them. What does that look like for us in our day-to-day -day living? We're a little over three chapters in, and over and over and over again, what has been the one day that we've seen Jesus at odds with the Pharisees? 
it's always on the Sabbath. It's like, dude, why not pick a fight on like a Tuesday? Like, why do you keep doing this to them? Like, what is it about Jesus going in on the Sabbath? Like, he shows up to church ready to fight people, spiritually, not physically. He wouldn't throw down, I don't think. But he always, it's just like, man, pick another day. Like, give these guys their one day and then humiliate them somewhere else. At some, like, teach them some other way. But he's always going to press them on the Sabbath. Because Jesus wants them to give the Sabbath back to God. He wants them to relinquish control of this one day that gives them a certain sense of control over everyone's life. Jesus says it's not yours to have. This is what Ben Witherington says. There is a sense in, a sense in which he, Jesus, Ask each group in Israelite society to give up what was most dear to them in order to embrace him. To the disciples, the challenge meant giving up family and job. To the Pharisees, it meant giving up their position of chief religious figures of their age. To the scribes, it meant giving up being the providers of the correct interpretation of the oral and written Torah. For the Sadducees and priests, it was to mean giving up a certain kind of temple-centered approach to Judaism. For ordinary Jews, it meant giving up certain attitudes about the moral outcast and the diseased in society. The wonder is not that Jesus was eventually rejected by all these groups, but that he was not rejected and killed sooner. Jesus asked everyone in his earthly ministry and every day since, every person that Jesus has called to himself to save them, every person has that one thing. We all have the one thing that we hold on to that we have to be willing to give up to fully embrace Jesus. We can kick, we can stomp, we can pitch a fit like my three-year-old does when it's time to turn cartoons off at the end of the day. We can plead our case as to why we need it just a little while longer. But to hold on to whatever it is, is to miss fully embracing Jesus for who he is. So what is it maybe that Jesus could be calling us to give up in our present culture to fully embrace him? I believe it is our idolatry, idolatrous love of busyness. Our frenetic pace of life has conditioned us to only feel value and worth based off of what we are doing. The call to Sabbath rest as a follower of Jesus is then by definition countercultural in a way that points to God as the true source of our joy and identity. If there is one thing we are all addicted to in this room, it is being busy. We fill our calendars to the brim with obligations and with commitments. We run ourselves ragged, not six days a week and rest one. We run ourselves into the ground week after week, month after month, year after year. And much like the Pharisees with the Sabbath and their extra rules to make it harder to work on the Sabbath, We've added a ton of extra rules to our own life about why it's the most spiritual thing we can do to stay as busy as we do. Think about how many conversations you have here on a Sunday or in your small group time or if you're just hanging out with another couple or a few friends. What, do you all, what, what inevitably is talked about? Hey, how are you doing? Man, we're good. We're just busy. 
hey, what do you guys got coming up the, in the next week? Man, you know, we're bit, we've got this tomorrow and this Tuesday and that Thursday and Friday and Saturday, and then we'll be back here Sunday. And then the next week, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, two things on Thursday, four things on Friday, three on Saturday, and then we'll be back here. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, man, we're busy. We have, a comp- we have an unstated competition in all of our lives about who can sound or who can be the busiest. It's how we derive so much of our identity and our worth. What are you accomplishing? And when we feed ourselves a constant stream of social media-fueled comparison, we always feel like there's more that we could be doing. We always feel like there's something else that we could be doing to measure up. And what the Sabbath is, when Jesus reinterprets the Sabbath and says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, when we read that here and now, we hear Jesus inviting us in to rest because our identity is secure in him. Who are you really busy for? And then when we Sabbath, this is what we think Sabbath is. Well, I'm going to take a day, and I'm not going to get out of my pajamas, which is not true for me. I'll be up and fully dressed, even on my day off by 6.30. I can't. Anyway, that's a different story for a different time. But we think, well, man, if, I, if it's a day of rest, I'm going to watch four seasons of The Office. Or, man, it's a day of rest, like, I'm going to go outside and mow the grass finally. Like, I can rest from all this other work. Let me go do this. Man, we can have some, let's rest today, but let's invite some friends over. And then, inevitably, you get to the end of a day, your day off, your day of rest, however you choose to phrase it, and you're exhausted, right? Because here's here's where Sabbath happens. Sabbath happens, Sabbath rest happens when we engage with God, not when we turn our minds and our hearts off to everything in the world and veg out on our couches. Sabbath rest happens when you engage with the God who created you and knit you together and holds you in his hand. You will never find rest if you're constantly distracting yourself. To Sabbath well is to engage with God, to hear from God, to get to the end of the day Tired because you've been spending time understanding who you are in God, in Christ. There's a different way to arrive at the end of a day of rest tired. You can arrive tired because you've done nothing to engage your heart and your mind. Or you can arrive at the end of a day of Sabbath rest tired because you've just spent time enjoying the day with your Father. We get rest so backwards and so wrong so often. We live anxiety-filled, stress-filled lives. Spending money and spending our energy to try to keep up with everyone else's hectic pace of life and standing over in the corner inviting us to rest is Jesus. And we just think he doesn't understand what real life is. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what will he give us? Rest. But we have to be willing to lay down the idol of busyness. We have to be willing to say, the best thing I can do one day a week or a half a day, depending on schedules, I understand you can't just tomorrow just say, well, from here on out, this day's off the calendar. What Jesus is inviting us into is a moment to reclaim our dignity and our humanity and our identity from the God who created us. When we 
participate in Sabbath today, we are pushing back against the rules and patterns of living that the world forces on us. When we practice Sabbath, we participate in an act of spiritual warfare that declares our allegiance is to God alone and our identity is found in Christ alone. Let me tell you what I believe to be 100% true. Community in the life of Restoration Church will flourish when we Sabbath well together. What does it look like to invite someone over to your house, not just to have a meal, but to engage with God together? What would community in the life of restoration look like if we laid down the idol of our busyness and we took up intentional times of rest to be with one another to enjoy God together? Think about the last time you hung out with anybody in this room outside of the context of here for a Sunday or at a small group setting. The last time you went to dinner together, the last time you just hung out and played a game together. How much of your conversation centered on engaging with God? When you Sabbath like that, you're inviting people into finding life and rest with you. And that's community that's compelling to the rest of the world. When your community is fueled by the same thing that the world is fueled by, there's no discernible difference between a group of believers together and a group of non-believers together. We're just offering community where we're going to make you feel bad if you do things that you shouldn't do. Community thrives, community deepens where Sabbath rest is practiced well, and we practice it well together. In the Old Testament, Sabbath was never an individual pursuit. Sabbath was always a communal pursuit, a communal call to slow down and rest and engage with and enjoy God and the world that he had given them. So it is for us that our Sabbath rest is best enjoyed together in community. Enjoying a meal and being sure to talk about over the course of a meal how God has been so good to us in allowing us friends and this food to enjoy. It means playing a game and celebrating in that moment that regardless of what's going on in life, we have this grace of friends sitting across the table from us to play a game with its friends that God has given us. But it's so dadgum hard to stop being busy because busy feels good. Busy makes us feel like we are in control of our life. Sabbath rest reminds us that we're not. This is how Barbara Brown Taylor puts it. I'll close with this. At least one day in every seven, pull off the road and park the car in the garage. Close the door to the tool shed and turn off the computer. Stay home, not because you are sick, but because you are well. Talk someone you love into being well with you. Take a nap, a walk, an hour for lunch. Here it is. Test the premise that you are worth more than you can produce. That even if you spent one whole day of being good for nothing, you would still be precious in God's sight. And when you get anxious because you are convinced that this is not so, remember that your own conviction is not required. This is a commandment. Your worth has already been established 
even when you are not working. The purpose of the commandment is to woo you to the same truth. God loves us. And God wants to be with us. On our own particular day of resting and enjoying him. Will we lay down our idols of busyness, take up our crosses, and rest well in the finished work of Jesus? Let's pray.